Welcome to Uncharted, The Road to Recovery, an FRP podcast hosted by me, Rebecca Byrne Callender. In this seven-part series, we speak to experts and business leaders from across the UK to identify and analyse the issues facing the UK business community in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Technology has had a significant impact on the world of forensic investigations in recent years, and the pandemic has accelerated that shift. In today's episode, the final one of this series, we will discuss how the industry is adapting to this new environment and how such trends, like machine learning and big data, as well as the disclosure pilot scheme, will affect practitioners, businesses and the wider industry in years to come. Joining me today is Tom Whitaker, an Associate and Solicitor Advocate in the Dispute Resolution Team at Legal Practice Burgess Salmon. From FRP, I'm delighted to welcome Chris Osborne, partner in the Forensic Services Team, and Stephen Bain, who is our tech expert working in the field of electronic discovery. I'm your host, Business and Economics Journalist Rebecca Byrne Callender. Thank you all so much for being here today. Chris, Perhaps you could start us off by giving us a little overview of what forensic services entail and maybe some of the cases you've dealt with in the past. Sure. So forensic services um, covers both forensic accounting and also forensic technology. Uh, Steve will talk more a little bit about uh, forensic technology um, later. Um, but yeah, forensic accounting and forensic technology, um, we very much work uh, together on projects. So whether that be fraud investigations, um, litigation, um, insolvency type matters. Um, so we have our respective skill sets, but there is a big crossover I- I- in the middle. Um, so if I could talk a little bit about forensic accounting first. So um, the forensic accounting skill set really can apply to a multitude of different uh, disputes uh, and investigations. Um, we tend to be industry agnostic. So we apply those skills in lots of different situations. So whether it's a contractual dispute, whether it's a fraud investigation, but it's valuing companies, those skill sets um, are are applied. Often we require Steve and his team to assist, especially where there is a a large um, volume of data. We might need to analyse that data in the context of a fraud investigation, for example. So Steve and his team would be used to collect the data to then load that up onto a document review platform to enable us, uh, lawyers such as uh, Tom and his team, to review for counsel, etc., or potentially a corporate uh, client to review that data. And what it's doing essentially is trying to take a large volume of data and to to distill that into a smaller batch of data, which is um, uh, representative of the relevant documents to then to then review and understand what's actually happened. And I'd like to hear more about the technology side. But is it true and fair to say that forensic services is, is kind of the cornerstone in a lot of cases that are brought to court now, Tom? Are you seeing that this is playing an even greater part in that whole process? Thank you, Bex. Yes, it's particularly important in a few respects. First one is before proceedings are started, clients often want to find out what the merits of their case are. So they decide whether they do want to proceed with court litigation or whether they want to try and settle the case in a different way. And that often relies upon understanding the evidence before you. Now, you may have an incomplete set of the evidence, an incomplete picture, but still you'll have some important information that you'll want to understand. Then it will come through to the disclosure phase when you're bringing the case and so you're starting to collect the data possibly a wider set of data and you're analyzing that and reviewing that seeing how that fits within your case and also seeing if any of that starts to undermine your case and to see whether that is then an appropriate time of settlement and especially when the cost of disclosure depending on the scale or the complexity of the case may be particularly great that um, is often a time where 
clients start to think about where the case may be going even longer term. And then finally, when you get to the trial itself, you have to put the evidence in front of the witnesses. Uh, you have to know how to deploy it within the, um, within the pleadings and within the submissions. And so the evidence itself is incredibly important to that. And often it can be uh, what swings a case from one way to another. So you have to be thinking about that end game from the outset. And so that's where working with like Chris and with Steve's team is particularly important so that you know what data is that you're, you need to collect, what, how you analyze it, and then how you can ultimately deploy it in the best way for your game. And we're talking about vast volumes of data in some cases here. Stephen, how on earth do you manage to go through it or analyze it all? Because we must be, I mean, talking about terrible. I mean, how, how much how much data can you get for a typical, say, fraud case? Um, I suppose every project's different. Um, we have small cases where we have you know, a few hundred documents, right? But they're very key documents. Um, and then you end up with a very large case where you have you know, 15 people involved with everyone has a laptop each, a mobile phone each, an, e an email account each. You may have data stored on Microsoft Teams. You may be collecting data from recordings, you know, video conferences and things like that. So you have to first think about what you need, then collect it. And then going forward, it's what are you actually doing with it? Because from my perspective, from a technical perspective, we can go in and collect as much as we like, right? Um, it's not proportionate, so we try and be, be smart with that approach. So you know, rather than going to a company and collecting everyone's mailbox, can we just focus on 10, for example? Um, and once we've focused on 10, I may go back to Tom and say, Tom, you know, we've collected all the data that we need for the key custodians. What's next? Do you need to run some keywords, for example? Do you need to run some date ranges? Um, is there anything in this set that we're particularly looking for? And how can we assist you? Um, and you know, using platforms like Relativity, Another review tools that, that are out there in the market, um, having all this data in one place, making it searchable, um, allowing external clients and people to go in um, and and review things is key. And I'd just add to what Steve said there that it's it's not just about the volume of data, it's about the different data sources and the different data types that you need to collect. So Steve referred to mailboxes where we all know just how many emails we may get per day, which are relevant or more likely not relevant, um, and how you have to wade through those. But then when you start to add in the collection of mobile phones, potentially um, MS Teams or Skype or Slack or various different data sources, they will all be in different data formats and each of those may warrant a different approach to review or to analysis. So structured data such as spreadsheets may be treated in a very different way to unstructured data such as text messages or emails. And so having an understanding of the issues behind each data source at the outset is really important so that you can work out how you're going to attack um, your overall data set. It's still very surprising when you do investigations that people are still writing down things that it's quite surprising that they would actually want to commit uh, to writing possibly because they think that they're not going to get caught but um yeah it's uh, it's quite interesting on those types of investigations so if we if we moved away then from this world of the discovery phase with all the lawyers i'm picturing there's, there's a film called clueless and the character sitting there with a highlighter going through conversation by conversation are those days over tom they they still remain for some people and for some cases but I think that by and large, discovery is becoming much more affordable and it's becoming much more expected so that it's starting to be deployed at different stages of cases. 
So rather than just within the disclosure phase of a civil claim, it may then be a key component of a regulatory investigation or early case analysis to work out your merits uh, through to a data subject access request. And so you will often have cases at different stages where you need to start to analyze and review your data. It may not just be a case of going through and highlighting. It may be a case of saying, I've got thousands upon thousands of WhatsApp messages or text messages. But is there a way that I can visualize who these messages are sent to or received from, when they were sent, the time of day? Perhaps I can start to draw out themes of concepts or ideas from them. And so rather than going through document by document, which will still be important at some stage and for some people, if you can start to draw out those key insights at an earlier stage, that's probably where the greatest value can be had. I think it's very interesting, actually, that certainly from a personal perspective, and as uh, Steve will tell you, I tend to like using paper quite a lot, and as do a lot of other people. And actually, I think that that the sort of trend will be things done much more electronically. So which is which is the way that the things tend to be moving anyway. So Steve and I have been doing a project over the last few years, which is uh, involves a litigation dating back 25 years. And that includes huge huge amounts of hard copy documentation including kind of the very thin sort of fax paper annotations on accounting ledgers all of those kind of things which is very rare and as steve will tell you it's moved much more towards a, an electronic data heavy data set if you like so less scanning of documents to get into relativity or document review platforms and i think that trend is going to continue partly because of homeworking partly because people want to to cut down on the use of paper for gdpr reasons etc so I think it's an in- interesting that the, the pandemic has possibly accelerated that 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 process. I, I agree, Chris. Falling on the back of the, the pandemic, I mean, everyone's now working differently. Um, you know, you're working from home, but you could be working from anywhere in Europe. And if you're taking data with you, as in electronically and in hard copy, are you, how are you tracking that? So, for example, you know, from an investigation perspective, if we are investigating ten people, typically you you would have been able to go to someone's office collect um, a laptop, collect a desktop, maybe a work mobile, collect email from the IT guy, um, and so on. Now, people are working all over the place. Um, and, you know, do I still need to consider the office accounts as well as potentially having to go to their personal address and collect a personal laptop and a personal phone? Um, so data touches so many different areas nowadays. Um, and at the start of an investigation or, or you know, a dispute, it's so important to, to do your homework and understand where that data sits. Could so has your office. job become a lot harder then, Steve? Because it sounds like there's just no end to the data sources now because the blend between work and, and personal life, it's just complete now. Yeah, I, I think um, there is an explosion of data sources, um, especially during COVID because, you know, Microsoft Teams, um, Zoom calls, you know, even these recordings that we're doing now, how, you know, how are we storing them? Where are they stored? How easily can we access them? Um, can they be searched? It's people's voices, but can I run keywords over them? Is there software available that can, can allow that functionality? Is there software out there that allows me to detect who is actually on that call? Um, you know, if everyone signs in as a guest, for example, do you have facial recognition software that can tell you who was in the call? So there's so many different ways of approaching things. Um, and there is technology out there for pretty much everything. It just comes down to what tools do we have in the toolbox to assist um, and, and allow all this data to be pulled together in one place and reviewed in a review tool. And also, Steve, just to further to that point, I think what's also proportionate as well, it depends on the the value of the claim or it depends on the potential um, issue. 
as as Beck said, you know, this the sort of data sources are potentially endless. But I guess it's taking that surgical approach to 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 working out what it is that exactly what we need and being cost and time proportionate to the particular um, assignment. Have the actual kinds of cases, the nature of the cases that are being brought, have, have they changed? I mean, you imagine that during times of kind of financial difficulty, you see businesses cutting corners, taking risks, maybe fraud taking place. Is that happening or have we seen any evidence of that becoming more relevant right now? As it currently stands in the last few months, we haven't seen any COVID pandemic related um, cases. We have been instructed on a number of different cases, whether it be fraud or, or disputes, but none of those are, are sort of pandemic related. They're just in the normal course of business. My personal view is that I, I anticipate that probably next year, possibly even to the back end of next year, we will start seeing those contractual type disputes, fraud type cases um, coming through. And it, it might well be that, that Tom possibly sees those before us and then seeks our assistance where there's you know data collection required or quantum analysis required from a forensic accounting perspective but as it currently stands at the moment i i haven't seen we haven't seen those types of cases but i do very much anticipate uh that those will be will, will be coming through yeah tom from your perspective do you see any particular kinds of crime on the rise is that is that a kind of naive to look, way of looking at this the way I would look at it instead is looking at where the risks may be. And so with people changing their working practices and working habits and the the tools and the applications that they use and the structures which are in place, the management, the governance structures, um, you have suddenly a greater number of opportunities for there to be weaknesses and for those to be exploited. And then simultaneously, you also have new commercial pressures on businesses and on individuals as well. So individuals may have a financial motive to try and um, commit a crime. Or you may have state-sponsored actors or you may have other corporates from certain jurisdictions who may be interested in um, trying to hack into data. So key examples at the moment would be cyber attacks on healthcare or to try and get hold of intellectual property and um, anything to do related to vaccines or COVID-19 preparations or, or medicines around there. Um, so there's particular risks there. Um, but you can certainly see on the horizon that there could be greater regulatory investigations and oversight uh, to make sure that businesses are operating effectively. And whilst there has been a recognition by those regulators to the challenges that COVID has uh, brought about, ultimately, the regulations are still in place and they will still expect businesses to be operating within those regulations. And then, of course, you can see that there will be potential contractual disputes arising from all of this because rarely is any business an island they will be operating with third parties or have their employment contracts and so if there is a crime it's likely that it will have touched upon a number of different areas a number of different parties and you will need to try and factually understand how it happened and whether anybody should have picked up on it or should have done something about it and further to to what Tom was just saying in terms of fraud, there will be frauds, I'm sure, that will be committed during the pandemic because of the pressures created by that, whether that's directors who are you know, in survival mode, who are doing things that otherwise they, they, they wouldn't normally do um, that, that would you know, be uncovered in, in the course of time. But it might well be that, that frauds um, that have been possibly been ongoing for, 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 for months, if not years pre-pandemic, with the financial downturn then become evident 
so there's there's sort of two different types i guess of of of, of cases if you like um and it might be that those ones become a little bit more evident so, sooner rather than later um which would be quite interesting and also just further to what um, that tom was talking about around sort of the regu- the regulators and enforcement agencies i think our view and you know from what we've been hearing from from clients etc is that enforcement agencies and, and 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 the regulator they've obviously had quite a lot to deal with in terms of the, the current crisis especially the fca and actually some of the some of the investigation work might well be not necessarily stopped but slowed down just because they've had to pivot some resources to to looking at other 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 issues so that there will be i'm sure at some point and maybe that's into next year uh, a much more of a kind of focus on on taking forward sort of investigations uh, and enforcement actions Picking up on that, I think there's a risk that in the future we start to act with the benefit of hindsight or indeed whoever it is who may be applying pressure to a business or potentially bringing a claim against a business, they will be doing so with the benefit of hindsight and forgetting just how difficult it it was back in February, March, April Mm. to respond um, to what was going on and the various pressures that were affecting businesses. So everybody was working incredibly um, hard and under immense time pressure. But I think in order to address future risk, it places the importance on documentary evidence, such as board minutes, to show that the proper procedures were followed, the thought processes were followed. Um, Of course, you shouldn't then just commit absolutely everything to writing because then there's a risk in itself. But to strike that balance so that you can show that you acted in accordance with your duties, whether you're a director or an insolvency practitioner, um, so that in the future, if you do need it, you have the evidence available to show what you did and why you did it. And I'm curious, so where we are in the UK, lockdown is easing, certainly in most parts of the country, but there's no certainty that we will remain out of lockdown. How on earth do you even begin an investigation when people are locked down? I mean, Stephen, when you were talking about people remote working, all these different kinds of technology, where do you begin when you can't even meet a client? That's a great question. Um, I think every project's different. I mean, one thing worth noting is that in the in the forensic technology industry, a couple of the bigger players, the bigger firms, did partner together in order to facilitate and allow forensic collections of data globally. So, for example, if you're based in Europe, um, and typically you were able to just hop on a plane with a team of 10 and fly into you know, um, APAC somewhere to, to do a collection and, and do client work, you couldn't do that during the lockdown. So they, they partnered up with, I guess, what are competitors in order to do what's right for the industry. Um, so I found that quite interesting during during lockdown. But um, I guess from my perspective, every project's different. So as an example, um, you know, only recently I had to go and um, collect a mobile phone from a, um, you know, a, a footballer because the, you know, he was obviously in in the middle of um, a dispute and um, he he wouldn't come to me, so I had to go to him. You know, COVID safety and and everything. But um, we had to collect the mobile phone, return to the office, do the investigation, do the analysis, and then provide the feedback. And that was quite interesting. That project would have probably been the same pre-COVID. But um, I know there are other projects that we work on that have that have really changed. We like to have people on the ground sometimes, you know, to, to touch physically. This is a laptop that belonged to Tom. This is a laptop that belonged to Chris. When you're doing remote work or remote collections or you're having to trust people, um, there's obviously a risk element there because someone could say, oh, this is my laptop. Well, how can I prove that? I don't know where you're sat. I don't know if that was your laptop at your office or whether that's your laptop at home or whether it's just, you know, your daughter's laptop that you've just handed, handed for the connection purposes. So 
there are lots and lots of questions um and i think from a risk perspective it, it, it's quite large um unless you ask people the, the relevant questions at the relevant time um and you can have some kind of interaction like this for example so maybe when we do remote collections you could have a video call have a look around the room is there anyone else present show me the devices that you have for example and so there's lots of different ways of approaching it it's just making sure that everyone's on the same page all the right questions are asked and that the process um like tom keeps saying is defensible and repeatable um and that's one of the key points in the work that we do going forward whether it's six weeks six months or six years down the line someone somewhere should be able to repeat the work that was undertaken um, and that's key from a forensic accounting perspective especially where it comes to investigations i think that for the most part we can work very effectively from remote locations where i would say it's difficult and it's all well and good uh, doing a meeting over over a video conference but if you are talking to someone who you think may have been manipulating an accounting system for example and I think you you miss something by not actually physically seeing them face to face, you know, going into their office, seeing them in their, their their work environment, seeing if they're a bit hot and sweaty and a bit flustered. I mean, sometimes you won't mm. necessarily be able to kind of pick that up over video conference. So I think that although this this sort of medium is a very, very good and I think it's 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 great in a sense of there's, there's a certain time efficiency about it. But I think where there's potential dishonesty type issues. I do think it, it's problematic in a sense that you probably just miss that maybe sort of 10 or 15% of body language that you would get if you were face to face with someone. Yeah, the, the kind of intangible side of what you do that's, yeah, the body language and just the gut instinct that you get when you're in the room with somebody. That's so interesting. And, and Tom, I'd like to talk to you about the disclosure pilot scheme because I've been told that that's one of the biggest kind of big changes to the industry that's having a really massive impact on everyone that works within it. Do you mind just giving me a bit of an overview of what exactly it is and, and how it's functioned so far and whether you think it's been successful? Certainly. So whenever you bring a claim within um, civil courts, you turn to the civil procedure rules and those rules will set out what steps you need to take at various stages of a case. One of those stages is likely to be disclosure um, so that parties are able to say, here are the documents upon which I rely or these are the documents upon which I want you to go and find and provide to me. Because in this jurisdiction, at least England and Wales, we operate on a more of a cards on the table approach so that you can have access to justice. Whereas in some other jurisdictions, they just say only disclose what you really want to disclose. And so there are very few documents involved. So there have been rules around disclosure um, many, many years, and the issues that were coming out were that they really weren't fit for purpose within the changing world where there is so much electronic data. They had some rules for it, um, but it wasn't really designed as a digital first, which is the phrase I keep saying. Um, and so what the Disclosure Pilot Scheme tries to do is say, well, in a world where you have so much electronic data, what should the rules be for parties um, as part of civil litigation to provide disclosure to one another? And it's really trying to tackle that disclosure needs to be reasonable and it needs to be proportionate in terms of the steps that are being taken, the time incurred and the costs incurred um, when looked at in the context of the case as a whole. So picking up on your last question in terms of where you start with collecting something, the first thing is, do you really have to? And so 
what the disclosure pilot scheme says is, well, instead of assuming that parties are going to go off and have a search or for the parties to assume that that's what they're going to do, you now have to make more of a reasoned basis um, for saying that there has to be some sort of search. So the courts are trying to take a more uh, strict approach to saying, is a search required? Um, I'd say that was probably the key change there. And what the parties are then facing is trying to determine, well, what is it that's required? What's reasonable? What's proportionate? And so the way they do it is to say out of all the issues in the case, which are the ones which require some sort of disclosure? And then in terms of giving that disclosure, do you just need to rely on the key documents? Is it just a few categories of documents? Do you need to go and search for documents? Or do you need to go and search for documents where there could be a train of inquiry, such as with a fraud case where one document may lead to a further search in the future? In terms of how it's going, it's only been around for um, nearly two years so far, starting in 2019. It's been extended to the end of 2021. There is an official observer and the courts have taken an active role in how it it's been drafted and how it's been applied as so there's been some case law that's been coming through from it um however i think a lot of practitioners are still finding that there are teething issues with it uh, or they are finding that there are issues with how certain parties approach the disclosure pilot scheme so whether they are properly cooperating whether they are um, using it in the spirit that it was uh, designed um with and so I expect that people will still take some issue with it and it will still be fine tuned over the next year and a bit. Uh, the official observer will publish some uh, statistics and a report on how it's been used. So there'll probably be some key areas of interest that will be changed. Um, although practically speaking, there will probably always be some areas where there will be differences of opinion as to how well it's working. And so you will always have to accept that there will be no perfect scheme for absolutely everybody steve you were you were nodding <laughs> when you when tom was saying about teething problems what have you what have you experienced um what have you seen as a result of the disclosure pilot scheme i think i've had a, a mixed mixed experience i've had mixed feedback as well from external clients um it's worked really well for some clients because because of the rules where you have to you know interact with each other um, you know both parties have to have an open discussion and agree issues and how they're going to search for things and so on you, you kind of get an insight into what the other side is trying to do on the flip side of that you know we've had clients who have had to spend a lot of money upfront costs in trying to deal with very very difficult um, disclosure review documents so part of part of the pilot scheme is that you have to agree your issues, as Tom said. And if you've got 10 issues, you know, fair enough. If you've got 30, 40, 50 that you're trying to agree, you can go very granular. Uh, and I think that um, in the first year of the disclosure pilot scheme, people were, were overdoing it, so to speak. So they were, they were picking 5, 10, 15 issues, but really going to detail for each one. Whereas I think um, the feedback from the courts is that, you know, your issues are your issues. Just tell me what you're trying to search for. You don't have to tell me how you're going to do it straight away, but have a high level umbrella issue. Um, and then within that, you just go off and do what you need to do in order to, to um, meet the criteria. Um, so I've seen disclosure review documents, which are incredibly technical. Um, you have, you know, lawyers um, and end clients agreeing keywords and date ranges um, without really understanding the logic behind what they're agreeing to do. Um, you have people who are agreeing 
logics or keywords to search over their data before they've actually looked at their data. Um, so they're saying, yeah, no problem, we'll, we'll run these 15, 20 keywords in this date range. And then they will run that in their system and realize that it's just too much data. They can't, they can't um, do it. So there's lots of lots of um, you know iterations of these DLD documents, and each time you want to make a change, you know it's not just um, you know a forensic technologist's time in running the searches, providing the feedback. It's then the lawyer's time. It's then their time having to go back to the other party. Then time for them to rerun. So every time a change is made, it, it's very very costly. And I think from a client's perspective as well, it's front-loaded, meaning that the entire process is now having to be thought about much earlier in the case than it probably was before, which I think may have caught a few people out at the start um, when the pilot scheme came in. Um, it was new, you know, it, it was like a light switch. It just came on and people thought, oh, I need to now consider all these different things. But it's, it's certainly helped. It's, it's brought structure. I think it's helped with the wider understanding of what's disclosure is, not just from a tech perspective, but also from an end client and from a law firm perspective. Um, so I've definitely found that um, there are benefits to it, but at the same time, I've, I've also heard that there are you know, incredibly um, incredible negatives to it as well from a client's perspective and to spend all this money just trying to agree something um, to move forward. So it, it's, it's interesting and I'm looking forward to seeing the feedback that, that comes from it. It's a bit of a shame, isn't it, that something, a scheme that was introduced to bring down the cost of disclosure, make it more cost effective, actually ends up bringing excessive costs if, if abused, because presumably you can, you can pull certain levers and, and as you say, add that le level of granularity and kind of bankrupt your opponent in the process. Tom? That was certainly one of the criticisms um, previously, that disclosure could be used in a very tactical way of trying to ramp up the overall costs. And a significant amount of the cost would be from the reviewers having to go through document by document for all of the false positives where a keyword returned the document. But actually, it's got nothing to do with the issues in dispute and could never have fallen within um, standard disclosure or whatever the disclosure order was. So in terms of the costs now, there's certainly an increased amount of costs around the beginning. The aim is, though, that the more time that you're able to determine a narrower scope of issue and the narrower scope of searches for that issue, the less time you need to incur for somebody going through document by document, which was previously where the time and the cost could have been incurred. So it, it may appear unpalatable because you suddenly think, hang on, I'm only doing the, the initial advice or the initial thinking behind it and I'm incurring costs for it. But, um, perhaps to use an analogy the more time that you put into the preparation of say designing a building then hopefully the faster that you're able to do it and the more robust it will be and and perhaps it's the case that the actual review stage will take a similar amount of time but it's with a proper logical reasoned basis and um, so give it those solid foundations i guess then with the advancement of technology with computer assisted learning and things like that then that should in theory I'm sure Steve has his views on this, should should in theory speed up the process and maybe mean that, you know, when I'm doing an investigation, for example, that actually the number of relevant documents that myself and the team need to look at are that much smaller because the machine is learning from 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 the inputs that we're we're making. 
let's talk a bit about that because we've covered off sort of what the environment ecosystem looks like right now but I'd love to know what the future holds so machine learning are we going to see artificial intelligence used I mean how how big is the sort of artificial the computer assistance going to be in this world Steve are are there kind of big jumps and and leaps in technology happening right now or are you predicting them in the future I think at the moment um, artificial intelligence is still quite a way away Um, the reason I say that is because you know most of the systems that we use still require human input. We're still trying to tell the computer what's good and bad. So the computer can't go away by itself and think, oh, this is good and this is bad. We still need to kind of, you know, um, I suppose, steer the ship in the right direction. That'd be one way of saying it. So we've been using a system called continuous active learning, basically where all the documents in your system um, get a score between 0 and 100. Documents scored with a 0 are likely not relevant documents scored with 100 are likely relevant. Um, I suppose another way of explaining that would be um, a bit like Netflix. So when you first uh, log into Netflix, it knows nothing about you. You then watch an action movie, and the system then starts to learn that you like action movies. And as you keep watching different films and different series, you realize that Netflix is actually starting to show you the next likely uh, movie or series that you want to see. And that logic works in, in these platforms as well. So, for example, you could start with 100,000 documents. You don't know where to start. And the system will feed you a few documents to say, is this good? Is, is this bad? Just to get, you know, um, a, a setting. And then as it continues to give you documents, the aim of the game is that the system is only trying to give you good documents. So it kind of shakes the box and all the good stuff comes to the top, meaning that it's efficient, it's more cost effective and that in theory, you are only seeing more relevant documents than not relevant documents. And historically, you know, you, you may have to read a uh, hundred irrelevant documents before you got to one relevant document. Whereas these systems and the algorithms that are, are really powerful, really effective, and, and when used um, properly on, on the proper projects and good data, they, they bring out fantastic results and, and really does do save in a lot of time and a lot of money for, for the clients. And certainly my experience of conducting investigations is that maybe you know, five, ten years ago that you'd have to use quite a number of junior people to sift through the irrelevant documents or sift out the relevant documents. Actually, the teams of people required to do this now actually need to be smaller and often people that understand the context of the case in which they're operating in. So because the machine is obviously learning from the inputs, actually it's, it, you need people who... I've got the experience and the understanding to actually educate the, the, the machine, if you like, in terms of what, what what is relevant. So I think the teams have ended up being smaller. And that means actually, as Tom was indicating, you know, hopefully the costs are then, are then coming down somewhat. And just from a legal perspective, the idea of technology assisted review and the use of AI to power your data analysis and document reviews, not particularly new. You had cases from the US from 2010 where the courts were giving their backing for this. Um, and then you've had cases in the UK that have been published since 2016 and so on. I don't think you've had a case yet where one party is trying to force the other one into using it against their will. But generally speaking, the courts have been very encouraging for parties to make use of this sort of data analytics and technology-assisted review. So within the disclosure pilot scheme, if you have more than 50,000 documents, then you have to explain why you wouldn't use technology-assisted review. So the expectation is very much you should be considering it. And for that sort of thing, you really do need to be engaging people like Steve's team to be able to understand how you can 
use it. But then also you, you need to be engaging the lawyers, as I would say, so that you can understand why it is that you need it. And you'll need to be working with your clients as well to understand the data and the nuances behind it. And this might be a stupid question, but I mean, I can't imagine technology replacing human beings simply because even when we're talking about keywords say you're looking for a fraud and the person that's involved is called Macefield and you put that as the 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 keyword but what if some people call them Mace or Fieldy or do you know what I mean all these little kind of strange semantics and, and turns of phrase and ways of couching the truth in kind of complicated like not code but almost you know slang or whatever can computers really spot that the way the human eye and the human brain can? Yes. And you've got a few examples of that. So from the Enron scandals, which is a um, data set which has been made public and is often used by different disclosure service providers to demonstrate what the technology can do. They show what sort of coded language was used by some of the traders, which at first wasn't identified because people didn't know of that coded language, but it subsequently was. Um, and in terms of the LIBOR fixing and manipulation cases that have come out as well, a number of the traders use, use code for that. And there will be plenty of ways by which you can try to find out what that code is. Partly, you just have to look at the documents and you start to think, why on earth are they referring to Mace there rather than uh, to Macefield? Um, but also you can do something called concept searching, where the disclosure platform will look at all of the documents. You may be able to exclude certain types of data, such as repeated data, like the confidentiality provisions at the bottom of an email. So it can then say, right, from the rest of the data, is it able to draw out certain themes? So if I keep seeing emails to A, do I keep seeing repeated phrases or similar concepts coming out? Or if I see repeated references to company A within an email, is that often followed by another phrase afterwards? And this concept search works a little bit like a, one of those word clouds where the most repeated words appears um, in, a, in a larger font so that you can more easily see it. But within the concept searches, you often have them in some sort of cluster wheel so that you're able to look around the wheel and say, OK, I'm starting to see one cluster here with certain words and concepts that come out. And then a subcluster has these. So as soon as you do that, you then say, well, that word makes sense. I can go into there because I think that's more likely to have relevant documents. Or I look at something else and think that doesn't make any sense at all. I want to investigate that a little bit further. And then from there, in a very iterative approach, you can start to build up a picture of what's been going on and what sorts of phrases are used. But that really still emphasizes that you still need the humans to be doing the review and to be feeding all of that knowledge and insight back into the system so that you can continue with your very iterative process. I agree, and Tom, Tom does hit on some great technology there, and most review platforms nowadays do have that type of technology built into them. It's very powerful when used correctly. Um, one thing I do want to make a note of is that, you know, as Tom says there, that's the perfect approach to a, a project. You take some time at the start of a project, you kind of have an early case assessment, where someone who understands the project will use all the tools in the toolbox to try and slice and dice the data, bring out the good stuff, hide the bad stuff, and then a review starts on the back of that. However, in, in, in a lot of cases, you know, time is of the essence and people will say, look, here are some keywords, here's some date ranges, off you go, run them. And I've got 15 people that want to review all these documents. So, so it's still a, a bit of give and take in the industry. And, and it comes down to the clients. It comes down to people like myself having to explain what's available, how they can use it, how it can benefit them. Um, but if you're dealing with someone who has a team of 15 people doing no work, 
you know, is he going to steer to or she steer towards technology or are they going to go for the, there we go, let's get some hours on, on the clock. Steve, I guess that then plays to um, cost pressures, doesn't it? And, you know, quite a few clients these days, particularly with the pandemic, are under cost pressures, especially sort of cash flow type issues. And therefore, they want to do things time and cost efficiently, which 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 is where I think that my personal view is where the technology comes in, as opposed to people time. It needs to be more machine time. And I think or we've seen it since the, the financial crisis that the clients and, and and when I say clients, I'm talking about law firm clients, in-house counsel or regulators, etc., they are just much more aware now of technology and what it can and can't do. They're, they're much more educated, I think. I mean, there's still people out there that are less sophisticated, of course. And, and I know part of what Steve does is, is, is trying to sort of get people up to speed in terms of an explaining very well in non-technical language what we're trying to achieve. But I think they have a, a good sense about how much these types of things sh- should cost. Sometimes, sometimes it's not terribly realistic in terms of what actually is required to be done, but there is a, there is a pressure on cost and will continue to be, I think, more so with this, what is, you know, now a financial crisis as well as a, a health crisis. And while we're on the topic of the kind of catalysts for change in the industry, and we, we've talked a little bit about, about the disclosure pilot scheme, we've talked about technology, uh, Brexit. I mean, I know that this, this feels like, <laughs> we, we, a topic that was flogged to death before the pandemic came along and, and, and focused our minds on something else. But is, is that likely to have an impact? Chris, are you, are you worried about what that means for sort of international cross-border disclosure cases that, that span multiple territories? I think it's just an, a, you know, an additional risk to, 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 to certain businesses. And of course, where there's risk, there's also opportunities. I suppose from a sort of a litigation perspective, as Tom rightly mentioned about contractual disputes, you could potentially see contractual disputes on the back of Brexit, whether it's sort of issues around supply chain, that type of thing, which more than likely will probably generate work for the likes of us on, on the forensic accounting, forensic technology side, but also on the legal side. So it could convert, you know, conversely actually generate more work on, on top of the work that we're likely to see on the back of the pandemic. Great. I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like I understand that how the forensic investigations industry has performed and it looks like it's adjusted and adapted incredibly well in the wake of the pandemic. But as you say, there are risks and opportunities ahead. Thank you all so much for your insights and for your time today. Amazing points and um, have a great rest of your day. Sadly, that's it for this series of Uncharted, The Road to Recovery. We've covered a huge range of topics and as the pandemic continues to affect businesses up and down the country, we hope you've benefited from the advice and experiences shared over the last seven weeks. If you've missed any of the episodes, don't forget to go back and give them a listen wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of FRP, thanks for listening.